Some Christian parents persistently shield their children from the reality of evil. They use evasion, deception, sometimes they'll even really lie to steer their children's attention away from honest, age-appropriate considerations of the presence of evil in our world. Such parents, whether they know it or not, really harbor the fantasy that if we avoid the topic of evil, we can protect our children's innocence and shield them from harm. What they fail to realize is that they are functioning more as dualists than as biblical Christians. They betray that they are not convinced God's sovereign dominion extends over the realm of evil. And so they do all that they can to avoid thinking about that realm. God's influence is limited to the realm of good and blessing, they think. And so let's close our eyes and plug our ears and hum loudly whenever the realm of darkness and evil rears its head, which it inevitably does. I'm thankful that our Heavenly Father does not operate under such delusions. To the contrary, our Heavenly Father is never embarrassed, never intimidated, or at a loss for words when speaking to His people about the realities of evil. God is a truth-telling, straight-shooting, all-wise realist. With piercing accuracy, He probes the moral darkness, anxious that we learn to wisely interpret and respond to the realities of evil in our world. And as our studies in divine providence have revealed, we can face the reality of evil with full confidence that God reigns with sovereign authority over the realm of evil. We can rest in the fact that God never releases His hand from the steering wheel of human history, no matter how dark things get. He never leaves that wheel in the control of sinners to take the world wherever their sinful passions may lead them. Rather, God freely rules over the realm of evil such that with perfect wisdom He conforms every sinful deed and evil circumstance to serve His ultimate saving purposes. We've seen this truth revealed explicitly in a number of passages of Scripture over recent weeks Today I'd like to present a case study in which God's governing providence over evil is implicitly revealed. We consider today a godless, seemingly God-forsaken moment of history in the history of God's chosen people. There's darkness here. There's real evil here. And God as our Father brings this to our attention and to our understanding. Before we enter this chilling narrative, we must come armed with several key truths. I'd like us to turn, first of all, to Deuteronomy. We'll be considering the narrative in Genesis 34, but if you'll work your way first to Deuteronomy 7, I'd like to prepare us by gaining a few ideas, just two ideas here, that we must bring with us into Genesis 34 in order to understand it appropriately. First is God's election of and promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham to bless all nations through him. So Abraham's family is chosen by God to produce Messiah. 
that promise passes from Abraham through to his son Isaac and through to his son Jacob. In an elective way, God chooses this family and these individuals. Through them, the Messiah will come. Now as we enter Genesis 34, Jacob has returned to the promised land from his sojourn in Padan Aram. And under the providence of God, he has secured there two wives and two concubines who will eventually give birth to twelve sons and one daughter whose name is Dinah. In a subtle but ominous echo of Lot settling near Sodom, we read in Genesis 33 and verse 18 that Jacob settles near the Canaanite city-state of Shechem. God's election of and promise to Abraham we must bring with us through this narrative as we come to understand it. Secondly, we need to bring with us God's standard of holiness an understanding of His holiness. God is holy. And He chooses Israel to reflect His holiness in a morally depraved world. He has chosen Israel not only to produce Messiah, but to be a reflection to the watching world of the distinctiveness of God's moral call and His law. They are to remain loyal to their Creator and their Savior. Now one way that God designs to protect the holiness of His people is by insisting that they not get sucked into idolatry through intermarriage with the godless world. Here with the Canaanites. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now this is later counsel of God, but it reveals the mind of God. As the Israelites are prepared to re-enter the promised land, Deuteronomy 7, preparing them for that, reads, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves, we'll just refer to them as the Canaanites in general, and verse 2, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. This all fulfilling God's judgment upon them. But the important point for us here is you shall make no covenant with them. Verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following Me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and He would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Why only the sons following the daughters? It was not wrong under the Old Covenant to bring in a woman outside of Israel into the clans of Israel. But it was wrong to enter into covenant with pagans and to exchange daughters. That is, to intermarry with them. This was against the counsel of God. As we would come to Judges 3, verses 5 and 6, we'll not read this, but really this intermarrying 
and entering covenant with the pagans epitomizes Israel's sin once they've entered into the land. Now at this point, they're a nation. But their sin is epitomized by their intermarrying with the Canaanites. The sin of Solomon is also equally epitomized by his joining into covenant with other nations as he marries women from other places who bring their gods with them and corrupt Solomon's heart, drawing it away from God. Exactly what God had said should not happen. Solomon does this. Knowing all of this about the mind of God, we bring this to Genesis chapter 34 and what is a very, very dark chapter. As Jacob settles his young family near Shechem, it seems to be a safe place. What Jacob does not realize is that he has walked into a satanic trap. Here at Shechem in Genesis 34, Satan seeks to destroy the godly line through whom Messiah will be born. He seeks to destroy the chosen family not by crushing it through opposition, but rather by assimilating it into the world. To so dilute it that it disappears. The outcome is a case study of God's governing providence in the midst of horrific evil. As we enter Genesis 34, we are met immediately by the rape of Jacob's daughter Dinah. Shechem rapes this young woman. Verse 1. Genesis 34, now Dinah, the the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. As the only daughter among Jacob's many sons, perhaps Dinah was anxious for some female companionship. We're not sure entirely why she goes to meet with the daughters of Shechem. What we do know is she's likely in her mid-teens, marriageable age in that day, apparently entering Shechem unprotected. We learn later that her brothers certainly would have been willing to protect her, but she goes apparently alone, or perhaps with some women of her clan. But Dinah crosses the path of a prince who has the power to take whatever he wants. And Shechem rapes Dinah. His love for her, described in verse 3, is obviously a twisted love. But it's not the sort that simply discards the girl like an empty beer can as Ammon did with Tamar, for instance. There's a genuine interest in this woman on his part, as corrupt as it is. In fact, the Hebrew words used in verse 3 indicate that Shechem is genuinely infatuated with her, believing he cannot live without her. But he also feels guilty about violating her, the indication is here in the Hebrew text, and he tries to, we might say, sweet-talk her, into believing that he is the right man for her. Oh, there's no such sweet talk with his father. Get me this girl for my wife. The word girl 
is a harsher word than is used anywhere else in the narrative. It might be in our way of speaking, something like, get me this chick, I want her. Sort of a disrespectful term. And not a term that he'll use as he's negotiating with her family. He, he expresses his lust, he takes this woman, and now he wants to keep her. We see the response to this horrifying event on Israel's part. First of all, the response of Jacob, her father. Verse 5, now Jacob heard that he, Shechem, had defiled Jacob's daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Now we need to understand how Old Testament narratives are put together. From this verse forward, Jacob is inexcusably passive. He is so dispassionate about his daughter's honor that he leaves the matter in the care of his sons and has nothing noteworthy to say to Hamor who shows up at his house with Shechem in tow, we find verse 11. If not on this first visit, perhaps on a, on a later visit, but he brings his son to talk to Jacob. I can tell you, I think honestly, if a man came to my door, informed me that his son who's standing next to him has raped my daughter and now wants to marry her, I'd have a few quotable lines for them. In fact, my response would probably lead the evening news. What do we have quoted from Jacob? Nothing. What does he do to deal with this situation? Nothing. He is put in very bad light as a father who apparently has no regard for the daughter of the wife that he doesn't love. It's an ugly, evil response on his part, or non-response. He says nothing. He does nothing. Nothing significant to record. His daughter, as verse 5 says, has been defiled. The Hebrew word is used later by Moses to designate ritual uncleanness. So the point here is that the holy people have been violated. An unholy act has been committed against the holy people. It is genuine evil, but Jacob fails to see this event for its spiritual significance. His sons at least see it for its social significance. And we see their response in verse 7. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. They hear in some way. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. We see and even feel their rage. Jacob, it would appear, doesn't even care to hurry them to come away from his livestock. He waits for a convenient time. But as they come, they are filled with anger. They at least sense the social indignation of this, the outrageousness of it, in contrast to their father Jacob. We read then in verse 8 of the response of the Shechemites, but Hamor, verse 8, spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. 
make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. The city-state of Shechem was not large by our standards, but it did control about 1,000 square miles of territory from Jerusalem to Megiddo. So this is a generous offer by a powerful family of a leading city-state to a sojourning family. Not only do they want just Dinah to be given in marriage to Shechem, they want to intermarry with the Israelites. And it's important for us to highlight verse 9, the end of verse 8. Give her to him to be wife, but make marriages with us. We want to enter into covenant with one another to intermarry between the Shechemites and the Israelites. This is an offer that is clearly contrary to God's will. It is an assault on His holiness. And it is a calculated attempt on the part of Satan to dissipate the messianic line by amalgamating Israel into a pagan people, to tear down the holiness of this people, joining them with the Canaanites, these Hivites. As is fitting, Father Hamar opens the marital negotiations, but his son Shechem also speaks up here in verse 11. He says, Shechem also said to her father, that is to Jacob and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. Here he employs the term, more respectful term, young woman. He sincerely wants to marry Dinah. Now it's interesting in this proposal for marriage, in this proposal to enter into covenant one with one another, to look back just a ways at chapter 33 and verse 18 where we find Jacob coming safely to the city of Shechem in the land of Canaan on his way from Padan Aram. He camps there before the city. And in verse 20, there he erects an altar and called it El Elohoi Israel. You see in your marginal note there, meaning God, the God of Israel. Isn't it interesting the Canaanites are not put off by that at all? In fact, the world has little problem with God's people communing with one another in worship as long as we will commune with the world in all of its ideas and philosophies. If you claim to have entered covenant with God through Christ, that's no problem as long as you enter covenant with us and participate in our worldview, You can hold your religious beliefs without much fear in this world if you will only keep them to yourself and identify with your culture. But what Satan is subtly doing here is putting an offer on the table that will effectively corrupt the line through whom Messiah will be born until it is indistinguishable. So there's no sense here that we desire to become followers of the living God. There is simply an offer here of covenant with a powerful city-state to a sojourning family. Verse 13, 
The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. The deceiver's sons learned to deceive because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Watch verse 16. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. There it is again. We see the emphasis in verse 9. We see it again here in verse 16. Entering covenant, giving one another's daughters that we might intermarry and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and we will be gone. Now it's a ruse, it's deception. But nonetheless, this is the negotiation that's brought to the Shechemites who believe very much that this is in earnest. Circumcision was the sign that God gave to Abraham to mark his offspring's covenant with God. We see here in another dark moment, the sons of Jacob are willing to abuse that sacred sign as a convenient cover for treachery. It's sacrilege. Jacob's sons do not explain what circumcision means. They don't explain to these Shechemites that this means that you will begin to worship God and become part of the covenant people. This whole thing has nothing to do with that kind of a covenant. Jacob's sons don't explain any of this because they have no interest in it. As far as the Shechemites are concerned, it's a means by which Israel will become part of them. They view circumcision as nothing more than a means to amalgamate Israel into their own people. And the sons of Jacob make no other point. Of course, deceptively, here there's none other to make. But it is significant to us as we look at this narrative, how the narrator lays it out, and the repeated emphasis from verse 9, here in verse 16, that this is about becoming one people. It's about intermarriage with one another. Jacob's sons are bluffing, but this is indeed the matter that is before Shechem and Israel. Verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. He responds immediately. His father, seeing his son's interest, responds immediately. But there's this added idea here at the end of verse 19 that he was the most honored of all his father's house. That's an important insertion. Because we note next how Hamor and Shechem approached the Shechemites. Their response to all of this matter. In verse 20 we read that Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, 
and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. We see it verse 22. Again, this emphasis, we will become one people. Understanding how these narratives are written, we have here this third emphasis. The focus is on intermarriage. The focus is on becoming one people. Even in the midst of the deception, that's what the issue is. And the narrator wants us to grasp that through this third repetition of the concept. Shechem's sensual lust is really all that is driving this matter. But you notice how his sales pitch works. His sales pitch is that intermarriage with Israel will serve the best interest of the entire city-state. He really uses here a materialistic hook. We will be a wealthier people if we unite with these people. There's nothing here about repentance. There's nothing here about submitting to the God of Israel. We are just going to make more money if we identify with these people, they with us, and enter into covenant with them. He's a pretty good charismatic politician all that aside and the addition at the end of verse 19 of his honored status how would you finish off the narrative if you were just writing it as fiction if it ended at verse 23 and you were asked to finish off this narrative how would it end I think I might write something like, and the men of Shechem listened to Shechem's request, and they told him to take a long walk off a short cliff. Absolutely not. This is your issue with this woman. That's your problem. You want to marry her, you go ahead and marry her, but we're not going forward with this thing. The pain of it, the vulnerability of it, would have been off-putting, except for verse 19b. This man is highly honored. He is so charismatic. He's so winsome. We're not sure why the city's named after him, but he's certainly the city's man. And there are people who are looking to get on his good side and to honor him. And so they say, verse 24, sign us up. All who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Out of the gate of his city is a figure of speech for every male that was old enough to take up arms and leave the city in battle. And in that day you could be very young. These are the men that are fit to in any way, shape, or form defend the city. Every one of them says, we'll go through with it. They're driven by materialism. They're driven by this man's appeal. They're driven by wanting to honor him and so they all submit to this very painful procedure. They do not submit to Israel's God. They do not abandon their idolatry. They simply submit to circumcision as a means of becoming one with Israel, stated accurately, of Israel becoming one with them. Satan seeks to dissipate the Messianic line. And as far as the Shechemites are concerned, no pain, no gain. So here we go. But as we enter into the second line of thought, moving from Shechem's rape of Jacob's daughter, the picture gets even darker. 
And we enter on to territory describing Jacob's son's rape of Shechem. Verse 25, the act. Shechem is attacked and plundered. On the third day when they were sore, and that is an understatement, they were probably facing um, rise in temperature, a fever, Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. This is God's people. These are the people that have been chosen to reflect the nature and the character of God. At the height of the Shechemites' debilitation, Simeon and Levi attacked the city that is that felt secure. That is, there probably was nobody interested in guarding the gate at this time, and they were completely unsuspecting of any evil around. We learn here in these verses, verses 25 and 26, that as they kill Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. That is, we learn that Dinah has been kidnapped. She's been under essentially house arrest up to this point. So as Shechem had seized her, she is now seized and taken away from Shechem, delivered from the man and the city forever. Verse 27, The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, and they plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, they stole their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. The retaliation far exceeded the crime. It was unjust vengeance. Shechem captures one woman and desires to keep her alive, and on some level to care for her, her nobly. Israel takes the wom- women of an entire city in response. Shechem was willing to pay for the right to marry the one woman that he captured. Israel loots Shechem and steals the women. It is unjust. It does not reflect the character of God. It is an evil scene as men are murdered deceptively and a city is ransacked by God's family. The response of Jacob, verse 30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. This is all he has to say about it. There's not a hint of holy anger with respect to the violation against Dinah. There's not a hint of concern about the reputation of God. What have you done as the people of God? What will this say to the Canaanites? None of that. Jacob's only concern is that his son's violent actions will make him unpopular and render him vulnerable. What are the neighbors going to think? That's all he says. 
Levi and Simeon respond, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? End of story. We see with chapter 35, God says to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel. And the scene changes and there's a new event in Jacob's life. This is where the narrative ends with this sentence. Understanding again how Hebrew narratives are put together, when there is a question that is not answered, it gives indication that the person asking the question has the upper hand. Jacob is left here in a very bad light and the narrator intends to put him in that bad light. His sons have acted with unjust violence. They have sinned greatly in exacting vengeance far beyond what was justified. Evil has prevailed on many levels. But they at least did something. That is more than anyone can say for Jacob. So in the rape of Dinah, and in the retaliatory rape of Shechem, God brings us face to face with evil. And I ask you, where is the light in this narrative? Where is the good in it? It ends here. And it's all evil and darkness. But I believe on the authority of more explicit passages of Scripture that God is all over this scene. Think of it, the line through which Messiah must be born is limited at this point in history to a single family. If there is ever a time to crush this family, it's as Jacob leaves Padan Aram and Esau comes with his army, but God spares the people in that scene. Now, if there is ever a time to assimilate the people of God out of existence, here it is. This young family, all of the children of marriageable age, without protection, sojourning in this land, unprotected, and this offer of intermarriage. Now is the time to crush Messiah's line. And Satan rages against this family. But through a remarkable set of evil circumstances and wicked decisions, do we recognize that the family line is actually preserved? Think of the twists and turns of providence here. Think of the choices that sinners freely make. And how they affect the outcome. Dinah goes unguarded to the city. Why? On this day, Shechem happens to be in town. She happens to walk across his notice. He does not think long. He does not think long at all. He thinks only about the passions that are controlling him at the moment. He seizes her and he rapes her. You know what this means? It means that the offer to intermarry with the Canaanites, the offer to enter covenant with them and become one people, comes from a man to the brothers of this woman, from a man who has just raped her. That's a deal changer. As the account works its way out. 
Does that make a difference? Imagine what might have happened had Shechem controlled his passions and respectfully proposed marriage to Dinah and intermarriage with the Israelites if there was not that hatred, that animosity, that anger that was in the, on the, in the hearts of Jacob's sons, this may have been a deal too good to pass up. It may have been an offer too good to refuse for a sojourning, vulnerable family who seemed to have nothing to lose. And who definitely was not morally strong enough to realize what would happen to their holiness. But under the sovereign governance of God, the man who proposes this unholy union to Jacob's sons is a man who's just raped their sister. They're filled with rage against this man because of this act. And as we look down in chapter 35, just at one point here, continuing these contingencies all of these circumstances coming together. Verse 5 says that they, that is the people of Jacob, journeyed and a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. The rape of Shechem undoubtedly played a part in this. Putting fear in the hearts of the Canaanites. We've seen what this family can do when they get upset. Let's leave them alone as they leave the land. No marriage proposals. No attacks. In part because of their sin and violence, they are left to be a holy, distinctive people. As sinful as they are. This is, from start to finish, a lurid, wicked account and our father takes the time to share this account with us but we have to ask then why why does a god of goodness and light and purity give to us such an account why include it in the bible it certainly is inserted here for some reason it's not a particularly devotional, edifying account, is it? What we read here from start to finish in it all is of lust and rape and kidnapping, fatherly failure to a tremendous degree, deception, self-serving politics, sacrilege, murder, plunder, injustice. Do we need this? Why is it here? Is it here to simply say, this is how bad the Canaanites are. A man can do this and he's honored among his people. And they follow him into his sin. Well, it certainly accomplishes that. But is that why it's here? Is this account here so that we learn how sinful Israel is and we come to understand the election and the love of God that it's not based upon merit ultimately? Well, we certainly learn that. There's no problem seeing Jacob's family in a very negative light here. But is that why this account is here? Answer the question from what you know. Where does the narrator continue to draw the emphasis? Verse 9, verse 16, verse 21, and 22. 
It's here because here there is an attack upon the people of God as the people of God. There is an attack here on the messianic line prophesied to crush Satan's head. Why is this narrative here apart from seeing this wickedness under the providence of God who is at work in the midst of evil? What we need to understand is that even in an evil scene such as this, God is all over it. In His governing providence, He uses the evil choices of people to preserve the line of Messiah. Could He act differently? Yes, He could. He is fully free. But under these circumstances, as people make these decisions, the line of Messiah is preserved intact. He preserves His chosen people. God forsaken is a description that cannot ultimately apply even to this lurid account. God never yields the wheel of history into the hands of sinners. He always steers with sovereign power and freedom. And in this, do we not find hope I trust tonight as we gather in homes and we talk through this passage of Scripture that we will chase out this message of hope that is here in this evil account. We can say indeed in the midst of an evil world that there is no moment of God-forsakenness in one sense. His grace is always extended and His sovereignty never relaxes. We find hope even in this evil as we realize that it is in the midst of evil and sin that we come to know God. Now if you're honest with your own heart in your own discernment of where you are in your relationship with God, if you're honest with that, you will see a greater darkness in your own heart than even is displayed by the Shechemites. We knowingly violate the law of God. Idolatrously we sin against His purposes. In ourselves, in the depths of the darkness that pervades our inner being, there is a violation of God. There is an idolatry against Him. There is a wickedness that holds us accountable to Him. But it's in our sin, it's in our wickedness that God introduces Himself to us in Christ. It is by coming to acknowledge that I am lost, coming to acknowledge that I need a Savior, that I meet Jesus Christ in His death in my place, rising from the dead and granting to His people the gift of eternal life. It's as I come to see the darkness within that I come to meet God. It does not matter what your sin is. There's no God-forsaken moment. See your sin for what it is and come to Jesus Christ crucified and risen. If you've not come to saving faith in Him, embrace His forgiveness and meet 
God in your sin. Be reconciled to God through Christ. The only God-forsaken moment would be if we enter eternity in our own strength, on our own merits, having rejected the gift of forgiveness and grace in Christ. That is to enter into a God-forsaken eternity. I implore you, if that's where you're headed, run to Christ. Run into His arms and receive His forgiveness. Meet Him in your sin. For those of us who know Christ the Savior, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This gives me hope and confidence in the midst of the darkness of my sin that God always reigns supreme. He can much more happily for us use our obedience to advance His cause than our disobedience, but we can have the confidence that even in our sin and our failure and in the sins of others against us, that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, that He will work it out for good. There may, may be great pain. There may be great evil. There may be great destruction in our experience. But where God reigns, there is always hope. There is always confidence that He will work all things according to the counsel of His will for the glory of His name and for the good of His people. Perhaps every one of us has some very dark stories. Some circumstances that we have entered in our lives that are very evil. Maybe we've been part of that evil. Maybe that evil has largely been brought against us by others. But what I can say, I believe, in light of this text, is that God is all over it. He is in it all. He is there he is directing for His glory and for our good every twist and turn of an evil world. He talks to us about evil. He levels with us about wickedness because He reigns sovereignly over it. And we can put our confidence and trust as poor and needy sinners that our God reigns and that He loves us with an infinite love despite our sin because of His grace. Let's bow for prayer. Father, they, there may be among us some who are running from Christ. They have never known the joy of sins forgiven. As they sing songs of the new life, they do not ring true. There is no witness of the Spirit. They're in their sin and darkness. For anyone that is in that state, I pray, Father, that they would flee from the wrath to come. That they would embrace Christ as their Savior. I pray that You will open their eyes to accomplish what You alone can accomplish. Bring such saving faith. For those of us who know You as Savior, Father, we thank You for the confidence that we can have in You. We are in Your grace and purpose, invincible. Not because of us, but because of You. We thank You 
for your protection, for your care, for your sovereign reign. And I pray that as we work these matters out for our individual lives, that we will continue to put our rest and our confidence in you. And we will thank you for what you are pleased to do by your sanctifying power through your indwelling spirit. In the name of the Son we pray. Amen.